Good morning to you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. Pardons all your iniquities, heals all your diseases. And he redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and kindness and compassion and satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Well, that's the word of the Lord to Israel who especially needed it, and we do in like manner. So we bless the Lord for that. I want to welcome you this morning. I want to welcome the, the Rudy family and the extended family. So if you want a real test with names now, you introduce yourself and you go make sure that you get names, give names, and they have come to be with us uh, this morning. The memorial service for Hal is going to be this afternoon, and here it'll be at 3 o'clock. And uh, this, I don't, I'm, I hope you take this in the right way. I'm looking forward to the message that how Rudy left his life. And there are some services as having done funerals and memorial services for almost 60 years, sometimes they get a little awkward. <laughs> but this is not one of those. <laughs> and this is... Uh, um, Honoring to the Lord in, in a number of ways. But welcome, family. Thank you for coming in this morning. And some of you have traveled quite a distance. I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm going to read the passage twice. I, you know, the, the middle name of our church is Bible. And so I, I can make no apologies. But I'm going to read the passage, first of all, from the English Standard Version. And then I'm going to read a little later on and I'll explain why, the New English translation. And we will begin that way, and I'm going to read it, and we're going to pray. And we have a number of, well, of our people need prayer in a variety of ways. But if you will, open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 42. And so that you will know what's coming. We are going to be doing a work in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. It will be in four parts. These are known as, these sections are the uh, servant songs. You get no more distilled, focused look into the life and soul of Christ than you do in these four chapters in Isaiah over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. They are incredible ch uh, chapters and sections. Uh, one of my favorites in the Bible. Uh, it, it just, it's, it's, it's so cleansing. It's uh, Christ exalting. So that's what we're going to begin to do today. But now, <clears throat> if you're with me, if you don't have your Bible, could be a little bit of a challenge. We don't have Bibles in the pews. Uh, maybe that's something to consider sometime in the future, but if you're with someone, you can look on and follow. Isaiah 42, I'm reading in the English Standard Version. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
He will bring justice to the na- he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and, the, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And more to that later. Let's pray now. We want to pray for the Kirklands. Uh, you've got the word, many of you, through the prayer request. They were, vis- they were in Idaho, and the whole family was in a vehicle. They were to re- have returned in, just in the next, well, by now. But they were rear-ended by a truck. And thank God for his mercy, there were no fatalities, but they're dealing with uh, concussions and whiplash split lips and if you have ever been involved I haven't been involved in a rear end crash but they can leave some difficult things to deal with so let's we'll pray for the Kirklands and uh, there are others who are traveling on this Labor Day weekend let's go to the Lord in prayer let's seek him Father we come to you because Lord we need you totally completely we're completely dependent upon you to open our eyes to see, to understand, to grasp what you say. Lord, in reading this from the prophet Isaiah, there are some lines, some sentences, some words that uh, sort of catch us off guard. We're trying to put them together. What did you say through him to the prophet, to us? We'll need you for that work, Lord. Bring it home to our hearts. Lord, I want to pray there for, for the Kirklands who now recuperating, not well, not well, with aches and pains and hurts and some things that uh, may be coming to their attention even now that you will give them the grace and the mercy they need to recover, give them some the healing that they need and smooth their way home and give them uh, good the medical attention, direct that to them. And just give them the physical sustenance and the strength and recovery they, they need. And Father, for the family of, of Hal, Rudy, 
Lord, thank you for them. I thank you, Lord, for Carol's faithful attention to her beloved of 64, almost 65 years. Lord, what an example of your grace and mercy through each of them to one another and to us that this is the way a marriage ought to be, loving and by one another's side till death do us part. Oh, Lord, thank you for that witness to us as we see your hand, as we've seen it in Hal's life and Carol's. And thank you. And their children, grandchildren have been so attentive and helpful, encouraging. Father, thank you for the people who helped in assisting Carol, moving about, back with being with, with Hal and then back to her home and all the, all the other factors involved. Thank you, Lord. Your mercy flows through your body, instruments in your hands. That was, that's what we want to be. Thank you that we've seen it in these examples. Now, Lord, as we come to this, uh, the prophet Isaiah, just give us, uh, help us to pay attention, Lord. So many things want to clamor and cry for attention with all the noise of the, the new football seasons, those who care. Uh, Lord, I pray that none of these things can intrude on what we need to be thinking about right now. So help us, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It was in 1992 that I went and traveled with uh, some other pastors and Christian workers to India. Some of you remember that? We were on the missions. Hal, Hal Reed was on the missions team at that time. And uh, this was one of the matters in which we became in, deeply involved and went to India to visit church planters there and what God was doing in evangelism in that uh, land of India. Well, uh, you can't, I have to say that, have to say it this way, not to con be condescending, but you have to see it, almost to believe it. It's just uh, Hinduism has a chokehold on that land, a severe chokehold. One day I visited, as some of us did, we visited one of the oldest of the Hindu temples. Cavernous, dark, kind of eerie. Uh, there was the walkthrough that I took. And then as I came out, I came face to face with one of the, on one of the side of the temple. There was this enormous concrete bull and standing in front of that concrete bull was a worshiper a man I assume he was in some form of communication you know Hindus have millions of gods and what there was what was transpiring at that moment was kind of an encapsulation of the degree of idolatry that is involved in Hinduism as well as many other systems in this world, as we'll see here in Isaiah. And I stood there behind him, watching him, wondering, what is he thinking? What's his worldview? How, does, how is he connecting that with life? Is he any understanding of the God of creation, the God over all? and God's gift of his son, Jesus Christ. But you know, when we think about those kinds of scenes, and you probably have seen comparable situations like that, and 
So we in the West, the sophisticates that we are, think, why, that is just so primitive, that idolatry. We are so thankful it's been stamped out in this Western civilization, and we didn't have to grow up with such kinds of diversions, distractions, deviation, distortions, and error, and idolatry. But you know what? Wrong, wrong, wrong. And what I hope emerges, what I'm about to show you here, that you will, we can get a renewed sense of, we live in a world filled with idols. They're more subtle in our civilization here. I don't see people standing in front of concrete bulls, worshiping. No, and you probably, you don't either. But you know, everybody, everybody is worshiping something, somewhere, somehow. Everybody you connect, are connected with. We all are. All right, with that said, let me do this. This is most important. We're coming to Isaiah 42, but take my word for it. Unless you follow the line of thought in Isaiah 40, 41, you won't fully appreciate the first of these four servant songs. And here's what happens. Isaiah is such a gigantic book. Here, I'm, it's like I'm trying to climb, climb Mount Everest real fast. Um, it's theological Mount Everest. We've been two Sundays in Isaiah. My intention was not to go straight through the book, though wonderful as that would be. We went through chapter 1. We went through chapter 11. And we saw those, just those incredible, those prophecies of the coming Messiah. Isaiah is famous for that. Over 22 of them in his prophecy. The book moves along up through first 39 chapters are kind of a package of thought. And it's simply this, that the northern ten tribes of Israel in that century, that time, that God was releasing Assyria to come in and be the instrument in his hands to discipline, covenant chastening of the northern ten tribes. The Assyrians came in, killing, pillaging, transporting a population out of the north, uh, northern part of the land. That was um, around 722 B.C. And the first part of the book is about that. But then when you come down to the 39th chapter, there is a, there's a noticeable shift of gears and thought. We've already met a couple of kings. A couple of kings, I say we have met. If one would have read through Isaiah 1 to 39, you would have encountered this. There was one king, Ahaz. There's another king, Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah was quite a notch better than Ahaz, but you know what? They both failed. They failed. And if you have your Bibles open, um, I, you cannot help but know, you would notice in chapter 39 in verse 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up for you in, uh, up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. I have to stop there because what that does is set us up for what's going to be happening. What has happened, it's all about what, is going to, what happened with regard to the northern tribes and Assyria. Now, if you want a little memory device, just remember A, Assyria, B, Babylon. Babylon comes into the picture. 
Hezekiah is, he's clueless. He shows these represent, these ambassadors from Babylon, he shows them all around. Hey, look, we got this. Go ahead and show them. This is in the National Treasury. Uh, then he takes them over to the Pentagon and tells them all the, the secrets and you know, that sort of thing. What is he thinking? Because it's these people who are going to be come in, coming in, and oh, about 117 years later, Babylon's going to come. Well, they won't be knocking on the door exactly. They'll be coming. You can hear the hoof beats. You can hear the chariots. You can see the clouds of dust. And you can see the soldiers coming in by the thousands of them. And they will be brought in, and they're going to be disciplining Israel again. Israel, I mean, just should say Judah, the southern two tribes. Because you say, why? They were, they were just pushing aside that wonderful law of God that had been given to keep them and make them distinct among the nations so God could display his glory, his power, his sovereignty to the world. And what they do? They fumble the ball big time. God said, I'm taking you out. Babylon's going to come. Now, you know, this chapter 40 begins in an interesting way. I can't help but I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to show off, but I can't help but knowing the opening Hebrew words here. Nakamu, nakamu! Comfort ye, comfort ye. As the Hebrew translated this for the word comfort in chapter 40 and verse 1. And from 40 on, uh, in a very special kind of way, down through 55, it's a comforting section. Wait a minute. You just told me the bad guys are coming. Taliban is coming to take you out. It's not exactly good news. I mean, ancient version of the Taliban. And so he goes immediately into a, a comfort section. And chapter 40, which I think is uh, it's unrivaled in Scripture for the magnificent statements it makes about God. If you've ever read it, you, it just leaves your head swimming. And, and God says, he says things like in verse 12. I'm getting to 42. Stay with me. He says in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Then in verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? And you get this magnificent picture of God and majesty and power, creator, the God of the universe. And he goes along. And then as you read along, you get down to the 19th verse. And here's a punch, a punch, a punch. As for the idol, a craftsman cast it. Oh, he shifts to the fact that here is your God in all of his magnificence and majesty. And now we are finding human beings, actually Jews, Israel, making idols with their hands. Like you make a cabinet or you build it, make a chariot. You make it, you take the wood, you cut it, you put it together. You, and, and then you, what do you do with it? You worship it. It's stupid, but you did it. And he goes on down, I don't have time to, this is not a message on 40 and 41, but if you track it, track him, he's really coming down hard on this idolatry business. It's just, it's so crazy. It doesn't make sense. Look what you've done. You, you've taken that which is created and you've turned that into the creator and then you worship that and you've turned your back on God. It doesn't make sense. Okay, shift gears, moving quickly. 40 and verse 1. 41 verse 1. 
And here's where something very interesting takes place, again in Isaiah. You know, a, a courtroom scene is really the framework of a lot of Isaiah. Now, not like courtrooms are conducted here. What you would have in a courtroom scene, uh, in a courtroom that would take place, if you had a case against, uh, here is you, let's say you and your neighbor, and uh, your neighbor comes over and they got a dog, you know, and this dog comes over and just uh, does a lot of bad things to you or keeps you up wake, barking all night. And so you come together and your task then was you, you would go before some judges. You make your case. You're the plaintiff. You make your case. The accused. And they answer. You argue your case. And then there's an adjudication. A decision is made. All right, that's the way they did it. Now, what this is done, what's done here in Isaiah, is this is put up on the, on the celestial. I mean, this is like the universe, a court scene. And God says, he's the one who's the plaintiff. And he calls all those idol makers, and he calls the idols in. Listen, I've got a case against you. You're sued. I'm going to sue your pants off. And he brings them up, and he shows how vacant, how evil, what they can't do. And here, here's how he does it. You see in verse 41, he says, coastlands, listen to me. He's calling all the nations come into this dispute. So here is God, and in this court scene, here are all the nations. They're all right there. And you know what he does? He said, can your gods do this? Can they predict the future? No, they can't. Then he gives them an example in this passage. He tells them about a king who's going to come up, unless you know your history and you've, you're really into some linear thought here, that it's Cyrus, Cyrus, the king of the Persians. You know when he would come on the scene? About 150 years later. So, so he's zooming all the way down to when that would happen. In the meantime, what he flies over, Babylon comes in, takes you out, you're in exile 70 years, and what's he doing? He's really comforting uh, God's people. That's an interesting side point with regard to comfort, that God's working out his purposes in our lives, personalized, take this personally, and you can have some terrible things, difficult things, painful things, sorrowful things take place. God sovereignly rules over them. Now, he's not jumping with joy that it is happening, but evil is in this world. Evil of death, evil of sin, and the evil of suffering. And so he sweeps over this, he, the prophet, does, through God, through the prophet. And he gives them comfort because, and you know how he does? Listen, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You hang with it. This is what I'm going to do. Yes, you're going to get a spanking. But after the spanking, things are going to be a whole lot grander. And he goes on through the rest of the book. Sounds like a message on the whole book of Isaiah. Almost is, but not quite. Now look in 41. And you'll see where he goes rapidly, rapidly, down to verse 29. And at that point, after he has just, he's been hammering on this idol thing. That's what it's all about in 41. Idols, idols. It just, that doesn't make sense. You give, you give the glory that's due me, you give it to idols. What are you thinking? Behold, all of them, verse 29, chapter 41, Behold, all of them, who are them? Idols of all kinds. All of them are false. Their works are worthless. 
Their molten images are wind and emptiness. They're windbags. They have no substance. You've made it up. It's make-believe. It's Disneyland. Kind of like that. And this is what you've done. And you know what? They can't accomplish prophecy. They can't tell you what's going to happen 150 years from now, but I can. So it's sort of like showdown. I can do this. Okay, have at it. You try it. See what he does. Puts them down. Puts them down. Puts them down. Now we've arrived at 42. Here, let me do this. Uh, I said I was going to read. I'm going to read the new English translation. Because it's got a little bit of a, a bit of a, what shall I say? A little bit of sparkle in the translation. It's not the fault of the scriptures. This is the way the translators have come, come to it. And here's the way the New English translation translates it here. You with me now? 42 and 1. Here is my servant whom I support. My chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I've placed my spirit on him. He will make just decrees for the nations. He will not cry out or shout. He will not publicize himself in the streets. A crushed reed he will not break. A dim wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully make just decrees. He will not grow dim or be crushed before establishing justice on the earth. The coastlands will wait in anticipation of his, for his decrees. This is what the true God, the Lord says, the one who created the sky and stretched it out, the one who fashioned the earth and everything that lives in it, the one who gives breath to the people on it and the life to those and life to those who live on it. I, the Lord, officially commission you, take hold of my, of your hand. I take hold of your hand. Got to get that right. We need to look at that more carefully. I protect you and make you a covenant mediator for people and a light to the nations to open blind eyes to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. The Lord speaks, I am the Lord, this is, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else or the praise due me with idols. Look, my earlier predictive oracles have come to pass. Now I announce new events. Before they begin to occur, I reveal them to you. All right, do you have a feel for it? Do you feel for this? Now, let's, let's look at something here. You know, idolatry is the worldview of unbelief. It's the worldview of unbelief. It's everywhere. It's not just some little category. Uh, there, there are certain people who are idolaters who stand in front of concrete bulls. No, 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 no. It manifests itself in different forms and fashions throughout history. But it's always the same in its essential nature. Always. Idolatry is, and get this, it's displacement of God. The essential nature of unbelief is that, displacement of God. In the world of Isaiah, idolatrous world systems dominated everywhere. you imagine what it was like? By the way, I think, side note, this is one reason why anti-Semitism is so deep, so wide, so long. And endurance. You know why? God broke into this dark, idolatrous world system and called out a people and said, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord God. There is none other. And you know what the world's response has been, continues to be? We don't like that. We're gods. We're in control. All right. 
Back to the point. So, idols, they're helpless to tell us about something that never has never happened before. And Isaiah's God, he knew what had happened. He knew the past. He's the creature. You don't notice in this section, I'd love to get off on this. I got hold back, hold back. I can't do it, but they don't have time. He just keeps putting their nose down in the face of the fact, down in the, in the dirt of the fact that God's the creator. He made the earth. Isn't it interesting that how where we have gone as a culture, society, the worldview, that no time, chance through time is that explanation for us. Do you, we have mother nature? Pardon my English, there ain't no mother nature. And it's not chance through time. God's the creator. He makes this clear. All right, sidebar. He made the world and he will bring history to its finish. And so therefore, can you compare God to idols? When you look back in chapter 40, you'll see, oh, come on, make the comparison. Let's go. Now, it's not just a, an objective beauty contest. Here are your idols. You like the way they look. I mean, you can carve out and make some very handsome handmade idols covered with, oh, you take the wood and cover it with gold, silver, and it can really dazzle you. That's what they did, didn't they? At the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to get the, the, the law, and, and he came back down, and what were they doing? Well, you know that story. Well, how dare you compare them, the idols, to me? And so that's what Isaiah 41 does. So, oh, I can't go back over that again. So therefore, the court scene. God's on the one side. The nations of the world are on the other side. You know what God wants? God wants justice. That's what he wants. Hang on to that word. It's critical to this. There must, they must be silent while God makes his complaint. It's like, sit down, shut up, and listen. Chapter 41, verses 2 through 20 does this. The sovereign God, he's the ruler over history. And we fail to acknowledge him. And you know what? This is an insult to God. Guess what? He takes it personally that you have substituted these objects of your belief and you've substituted that for belief in me and trust in me and worshiping me. So let's, let's see what... The, so then he comes, he comes then to 42. And he actually begins... It, that, that word behold in 42.1, it's like, hey, look at my servant! After all this, these idols and their, their pity, pitiful nature, they're nothings, they're nothing burgers. And he says, hey, look at my servant. Look at him. And that's where it's going to be. 42, 49, 50. Woo, and then we get to chapter 53. I can hardly wait. <laughs> this is it. This is the servant, my servant. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. And he goes through these nine verses. Now, we are, we're looking at the first nine verses, and there is some interpreters differ when you go through 42, 49, 50, 50. When do these servant songs end? Some of them seem to kind of tail off, but we don't need to worry about that. There's sufficiency, sufficient coverage here in these nine verses. So we get an introduction to the servant. But you know what the most serious crime is? Oh, I'm looking at this thing. Ah, there. Now I can see some of you. Uh, that, you know what the most serious crime of all is? 
that we have not worshipped God with all of our heart, soul, mind, soul, strength. That's the most serious crime. That's the great offense. And God could have, he could have accused them of a lot of crimes. Israel and the nations, murder, lying, adultery. But you know, those are not good. But you know the worst crime? That you've not worshipped me. You've taken glory from me. I will have none of it. That's an insult to me. Oh, this just flies in the face of human beings. Don't like it at all. The most wicked thing is to give one's loyalty to idols. Now, be careful. It's not just that man standing in front of that concrete bull. I'm not through with this yet on this one. The scripture is Godlessness comes before wickedness. Romans 1. And there's the exchanging of the truth of God for a what? A lie. All other crimes flow from the refusal to worship God. The worst sin, the worst sin, is to rob God of his glory and place the created thing in the place of the creator. Make sure that really pulsates at the core of your theology. Somebody ask you, what's your theology? That better be right up front. So what's the worst sin that we can commit? Is to not worship God with all our heart. So there it is, that God is not getting the glory that he deserves. And what we've come in is with a flood, a flood of worldviews that are lo- downloaded with idols. It can easily, we can, this is kind of ancient. I'll give you an ancient, I'll say ancient, maybe 14, 15 years ago. And then uh, there's another example. Be quick with it. I remember we had the occasion to take our grandkids, Cliff, my, my dear brother-in-law is with the Lord now. We were tasked, it was, it was around Thanksgiving time, I think. We were tasked to take, now there were six of these little, it was like herding cats, to take them to the theater to see Polar Express. And, and the place was packed. Okay, that's incidental. But do you know what the, the, the theme of that was? It was, a, it was a theme on the theology of idolatry. And it, it went like the theme was uh, the movie, Polar Express, that it doesn't make any difference which train you get on as long as you get there. Where? Well, and so as long as you believe, that was the key. It doesn't matter what train you get on as long as you believe. And you know how these movies go for kiddies. They tell these awful things and parents are, come back. Not that time for that. And that's, but you know what's swept into our society, into our culture now? What's swept in? Now we've got people doing uh, genuflexing, making decisions about business relationships, educational philosophy, what's to be taught in the classroom, uh, how the military is to function, how we engage in international relationships and what we do with the social problems that we face. And we've got something, we've got it, we've got it. We're, hey, we're working overtime to indoctrinate and create re-education camps. <laughs> 
re-education camps so we can get all the employees into these seminars that can last for days a week so that you can get your pronouns right and get everything in place. And, that, uh, and we need to just show you that there is a, there are a minority of people that need special uh, elevation, not that they don't deserve prayer and concern and compassion. Oh, absolutely. But we're told it's everywhere, it's everywhere, it's everywhere. And, and, and hey, we made it easy for you. It seems like it's easy up front. Just remember these three words. All right, you ready? Just remember, these are, these are the new idols, new idols. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Aren't they sweet? He said, well, what could be against that? It's demonic, idolatrous. But people just standing before their concrete bull and just feel so good about themselves so that they can change the way everybody thinks and create new worldviews. I told you it was not far away. And I'm just giving, I'm, I've just scratched the surface. But here's where Isaiah comes in. The Lord does. Look at this. Look at what? You who worship the creation, you who worship worthless idols, look at this. My servant. But who is the servant? Ah, a little bit of a mystery here. Who is the servant? But what God is determined to do is to defend his honor. That's, what he, that's why he brings it up his servant. I've got someone who's going to defend my honor. And why does God call the nations into his courtroom? Because of his glory, who he is. And this, this theme runs straight through from Isaiah 40 all the way to the end of the book. His glory, his glory. The Lord says, here is my servant. And he makes this case in the court. And he renders a verdict by presenting it. Now, I, I, I have to, I, I can't, since we've got three more times dealing with this issue theologically, I have to say this up front and just give it important no, an important notice that who is this servant? Who is he? Now, two things. One, you, you will get, if you read them, he does look, you're not quite as sharply in focused in 40, by the time you get to 42. And then when you get into 49 of Isaiah, it gets a little more in focus. And then when you get to 50, it gets really much more in focus. And when you get to 53, voila, the stops are wide open. We see him coming. Now, another factor is that, guess what? This passage in the hands of unbelief, they've tried to massage it and say, well, the servant. I went to that, uh, the Jewish study Bible, uh, which is quite helpful in many places, dealing with the Hebrew language and passages like this, and they say it's the Israel within Israel. It's the believing Israel. Almost sounds like some, another view within evangelicalism, that the Israel becomes the church, and the church is the new Israel but different. And others say, well, no, this is Israel. But because he does say this in chapter uh, 41 in verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham. So they say, it's Israel. Well, it is, but it isn't. And I'll tell you why. But these are the reasons, or these are the ways this passage is approached. 
I think that what he's speaking of, can, can I just be bold and clear? I don't want to be misunderstood. The servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes increasingly clear who he's talking about. And it's, it's amazing the description that is given. So here, here's what we have to see then. The servant. Israel was designated to be the servant of the Lord. True. He called them out to be a servant. And however, we're looking at an individual. So that's what's created the tension. But Israel, as God's servant, was supposed to do what? To bring, to bring the world to a knowledge of God. To demonstrate the glory of God through, that it would be demonstrated through Israel. You've been all the whole year in Exodus <laughs> to, to this very issue. The tabernacle, Ten Commandments, so the priesthood. But what happened? Israel failed. Israel failed. Oh. But what does God do? So the Messiah will not fail to accomplish his purpose. He will defend my glory. He will step forward and be the one who is the fulfillment of everything expected and hoped for in man, but found in God in Christ Jesus the Lord. That's where he goes. Now watch how it unfolds. 42, I see it has two movements to it. You still with me? In verses 1 to 4, here's where, how he proceeds. That this servant of the Lord of whom he speaks, he's going to be successful. Get that right up front. He's not a loser. <laughs> he's not a failure. And he breaks it down into, into two, two, three, four, yeah, four different uh, issues come up here. Do you have that? Do you have, them? you have this bulletin that gives you a little guidance there for the, how we're going? That, first of all, in verse 1, it's the Lord who designates and endows his servant. He says, this is who he is, and this is what he's been. So the servant will bring divine truth to the nations in the power of God. And here is the one, guess what, who has never worshipped false gods. Aha! He didn't fail. He never worshipped them. And... Interesting, isn't it, that after Jesus was baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, and who comes after him? Who comes after him? Satan. Really gives him his best shots, try to take him out, tempt him away from his mission. But the servant was different from all other. He did not cave. He did not fail. He came to bring the Father honor, and he walked in obedience perfectly, and he brought honor to the Father. And there was, this, this was more important than anything else. He's always thinking of the Lord whom he has given willing service. You read that through the Gospels. If you read the Gospels carefully, just get into the Gospel of John, particularly get into chapters 8, 9, and 17. And, wow, it just comes through loud and clear. Now, what is his ministry? If you're looking at your Bible, there's a word that occurs three times. We're still dealing with verse 1. And what he says here, make sure you're, you're getting the movement. He says, whom I have, uh, I uphold. Let me explain a couple of the words, and then I'll come back to that thought. He says, I'm a, actually, who I, upon whom I have a firm grip. A firm grip. That is, he's not going to fail. So the father is alongside of the son, 
and they are collaborating, and the son is collaborating in obedience. He's got a firm grip on him. He's not going to fail. Why oh, don't you just get sick and tired of that in politics? Oh, I've been going through this for 80 plus years. I mean, every president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, though I was sitting in a high chair when he was president. But, uh, uh, you know, we get these presidents and everybody pins their hopes and it just, it gets more feverish and frantic. The world does this. Look at the overthrow, a coup here, a coup there. Kill this president, raise this president up. I'm going to save this nation, whether it's Venezuela or Niger or wherever it is, Chad, everywhere, everywhere. Oh, we want somebody, come save us from ourselves. I've got a firm grip on my servant. And then he goes on to say, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Ah, pleased, so pleased I am. I have put my spirit upon him. Remember the baptism of Jesus? The spirit came down in appearance as a dove. It was a, the anointing of the Savior for his ministry on earth. And he says, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will cry out, or uh, he will, excuse me, he will not cry out or raise his voice. Pause there. See the word justice if you mark your Bible. You want to circle that word because you'll see it again in verse 3 and you see it again in verse 4. Very, very important here. Here's the, here's the truth that goes with it. That his ministry is justice to the nations in faithfulness. He's authentic. He's genuine. And he has revealed the Father. And justice is, get this, get this. Remember those three words I told you which represent a, a, an idolatrous worldview, diversity, equity, and inclusion here. And, and they use the word justice a lot. I'm reading stuff. I'm reading stuff on this, so excuse me. I tend to kind of lap over into it and I'm re reading what's going on in our society. But I have to say this. You read a lot about justice from some people who are trying to change, change everything. Justice, justice. We want justice. And God says, I'm going to get justice. And you know what justice is? Justice is applying God's truth to the human situation. God's truth. Not what you make up. Not what you cobble together with your human, imperfect, imperfect human thoughts. Justice is that which will create the perfect society. And only God gives that justice. And the Messiah has come to give justice. Unlike the idols who speak deception, justice is a word from God. A just verdict will be rendered by God's servant. The servant will persuade people of the truth. He will show them that the Lord alone is to be worshipped and honored. Justice must be done. That God alone is to be loved and honored. That's the ultimate word on justice. That's it. That's it. That should drive your worldview. God, not man. Not man who is to be above and set above all things. Not man's brain, not man's theories, not man's religions, but God, who he, how he has revealed himself. So he will bring divine truth to the nations. God's servant. I think it's a fair question to ask right here. I had to ask it of myself, got to thinking about it. I wrote it in my notes. Do you see yourself as God's servant? I mean, we're talking about Christ, the perfect servant. But wait a minute. We're servants. If we're Christ, you belong to him. You put your faith and trust in Christ and him alone. Does that shape the way you, we talk about all the, the craze now is on identity? 
identity, identity. Do you see yourself? You want to know my identity? You're Christ's servant. Does that pulsate right at the, way, at the heart of your worldview? I am. If I belong to Christ through faith in him, faith in him alone for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, I'm God's servant. That should really revolutionize about everything. We, it, uh, we, uh, our fingerprints should be on everything with that left if they did a check of your fingerprint. Hey, this is a servant of God. She, he, they, look how they live. We get an example of that, by the way, this afternoon. This is providential. The Lord took Hal Rudy. He walked across the bridge. And it was a rough bridge to go across. We all go across the bridge. Hal's bridge, he got troublesome for him. He hurt. But you know what? What's superior to that fact is that there was left by him an indelible impression that he was God's servant. Perfect? No. None of us are. A servant. What a thing to leave for people to think about and to, and to, and to be the occasion to worship God. Oh, if I could be. I, I just, this is not the memorial service. I know it's at 3 o'clock, but I have to say this. I read this eulogy and I knew how. I knew him how many years. He was here, 30, 40 years. And I knew how he functioned. And I, I, I said, well, Lord, there, there are some examples of what it means to be a servant. I, okay, I can pick up on that. I can pick up on that. I can pick up on that. Thank you. That's what God wants to do with us. Not that we're going to be the perfect. Jesus Christ is the perfect servant. But we sure hope he kind of leaks through in our lives. <laughs> Somehow, some way. More so in others. Some others. Okay, verses 2 and 3. Moving along. 2 and 3. Now look at the way that these verses express. See, here, the servant is going to be successful. The Lord's servant, he will not be a demagogue. Ah, look at this. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully burn. What's he saying here? This. The servant, you know what a demagogue is? You probably have seen it more than, you see it all the time. Politicians are up to their ears in demagoguery. You know what it's like? It's when you show up, in many ways it can manifest itself one way, you show up to a problem, the scene of a crime, a problem, or whatever, and you demagogue it. That is, you use emotion to manipulate people. And what you do is that, uh, there are various synonyms for this, uh, an opportunist, an inflamer, and manipulating people by appealing to their emotions and prejudices. And there's some people who are really, really good at that. And they get a following, they get a movement, they get more money, they get more prestige, they get more power. Power, yeah, that's what the power, demagoguery, demagoguery. But you know what the servant was like? What was it like if you could have, you ever, did your imagination ever go kind of go crazy like this? What would it be like to have walked with Jesus a day? You know, if you could, I know they have Jesus movies that try to make this, make you realize it, but still, think of this. He was not a manipulator. He was not demagogic. He was gentle. He was compassionate. Interesting. I've got to make this a quick sidebar. You know where this passage is quoted at length? In Matthew 12, verses 18 through 24. You know where that, you don't need to turn out, I'll tell you where it is. 
what happened. Jesus has just cast out some demons. Out of a, he just uh, healed one who was deaf and dumb, couldn't see, couldn't hear. And, and then he gets pushback from people around him. I mean, what has he got to do? He's given his credentials. And then he quotes the passage quoted from Isaiah. And then you know what happens on the heels of that? You knew this, but you may have forgotten that it was Isaiah that quoted, preceded that. The Pharisees said, he's doing these miracles in the name of the devil. You're a devil. You're a devil. You're a demon. And that's where this unpardonable sin issue comes up in the 12th chapter. But you know what precedes? This passage about the Messiah. Okay, I, I can't work with that any further, but come back to this. The servant didn't shout others down. Don't you get aggravated at that sometimes, these people talking over one another. No, 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 you can't say that. This is what I believe. You shut up, listen to me. I've got the answer. And, you know, and they go on, and he who is loudest gets the most attention, gets the best press, gets the, get the name goes up in the polls because he talked loud and made a big show. Jesus didn't function that way. He talked calmly. He didn't go around shouting, haranguing, manipulating, not at all. He was not out to startle people. He was not a sensationalist. And when you compare Jesus to other rulers of his time and any time, those who, who claim to bring justice and their, their technique is to smash and rebuild. I've got the answer. Listen to me. These people are taking advantage of you. Look what they've done. But I'm here to rescue you. I've come. Here I am. So they thought Jesus was quiet. He was calm. And it says he can mend the broken reed. You know who comes to mind? Remember the Samaritan woman? Oh, what a mess she was in. Oh, Jesus, this is so gentle, so kind, so firm. He doesn't pull any punches, but he just, he's so loving and compassionate. And so this, the bruised reed people and smoldering wick people, these people whose flames just about gone out. <laughs> they were just at the end of the rope, their rope, broken by drugs, Alcohol, pain, suffering, a broken relationship, some habit has just gotten them by the throat and just choked the life out of them, and it's just taken them away from fervency for God. He knew Jesus was drawn, he was drawn to, and people were drawn to him because he was compassionate. He, he saw the heart, and he, he, he was so, so kind and gentle. He's servant. And, oh, and look in the latter part of verse 3. Look at that. Where he says in verse 3, end of it, that he will faithfully bring forth justice and he will not be disheartened or crushed. That, that the servant, he gives hope to the hopeless, disillusioned people. That's the kind of man he was. And people who are disillusioned with the life of this world, well, we can all get that way, can't we? It just, oh, is this as good as it gets? And, no. And people, we get into these fads, always some new fad. Make yourself, make yourself beautiful and sexually alluring. Mm. That's the answer. That'll give you meaning. Success. Well, find it. You know, the idols. The idols say, hey, come here. You'll find meaning over here. A lot of, lot of you know, men and women. Sports, that'll do it. Oh, hey, money. Go, go there and let worship that one. And sex, 
Woo, that's a powerful one. Talk about a knockout punch. Works cuts both ways for men and women. Each can become, can become an idol, become a replacement for God. To be a success, to where you, kind of car you drive, what neighborhood you live in, the kind of house you have, where you make your investments, how your children turned out, where they go to school, you know, all these, all these you get a brand, get a brand, look successful, that's it. Boy, if I can get that, I've, I've been good. I'm good. Oh, have you given God glory? Or you see yourself his servant. So the Lord's servant, he will exhibit unfailing endurance. Verse 4. Got to pick up the pace here a little bit. He says, unfailing endurance. The servant, Jesus Christ, was tempted without, was without sin. He will succeed. He didn't quit when his disciples abandoned him, when he was betrayed. Rehearse that one. Rehearse that one. Here is the God of the universe infinitely perfect and holy and righteous, never did a wrong thing in his life. And what happened to him? The politicians, he was disposable. To the religious crowd, he was a threat. To his disciples, he was a disappointment. To one of his disciples said, I'm so disappointed, I'm gonna betray you. Here, here's a kiss. And betrayed him. And all that was left hanging on that cross of him, everybody else, Mother Mary was out there on the fringes. But, you know, at one point, even she thought he was crazy. And Jesus went through all these different degrees of rejection and obscurity and resisted and finally rejected. And you know why he was there? Because he loved us so much. He loved us. And he took that torture. He took that whip. He took those nails. He took that ridicule. He took those, that scathing mockery. Hey! Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Hey, hey, ha, ha, ha. He was there dying for the very people who mocked him. For us, he gave his life. That's the servant. That's the servant. That's the one God says, look at my servant. Look at my servant. He's the one. He's the one to whom we should look. He upholds my glory, my name, my reputation. Ah, oh, my servant. I have to be quick with this one. I think I've got the core of it, but verses 5 to 7 are not unimportant. Just hold, get it. The servant of the Lord not only will be successful, that's what verses 1 through 4, he's going to be successful. I, I can tell you, movies that they make, that's not who's the, the, the hero usually is, doesn't come out looking like that. People probably wouldn't go to the movie. But the servant of the Lord will be empowered to do his work. So that's what he comes on in verses 5 through 7. How do we know he can do it? Well, you said that. How do we know he can do all that? With all that he faced, all the opposition, all, everything against him. The culture, the world system, the politics, the military, the financial institution, I mean, the trading world, commerce, all these people went about with their, day, their daily lives. Well, here, and somewhat call this kind of the tailpiece of this uh, of this servant song verses five to nine but he goes through this and he shows he's sovereign over creation he supplies power for his calling it's my spirit he says will be upon him he will demolish all the idols and then he goes through these I, oh they're precious they're wonderful here it is the lord he's the accredited sovereign creator the Lord affirms his servant's call in verse six. Look, first part of verse six. He pledges, how, how does it read? Verse, verse six, that he says, I am the Lord, 
I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by my hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as, says, a covenant. Here, here, here it is. Quickly, three, three things. Get these. It is the tailpiece literarily here, but not theologically. It's this. That, first of all, the servant's going to bring about a new covenant. New covenant. We're about to remember it right here. New covenant. The new covenant with Israel guarantees their salvation, their nationhood, their prosperity, and, their, and the gift, finally, of the land. Land, seed, and blessing. And you know how we come in on it? We come in on it because it's the basis for our own salvation and conversion in Jesus Christ. The new birth. Life he gives through his substitutionary death. And then he says he's going to become the light for the Gentiles. Light, that's salvation. He's going to bring the knowledge of God. He's going to open eyes to see the way things really are and see the world as it is and to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God and see him ever more fully in all his wonder and majesty. And then the servant, he's going to deliver blind prisoners. Now, actually, he's not talking about a physical, literal healing of the blind, though he did that. He's talking about bringing people out of these prisons. Oh, you didn't want to be in a prison in the ancient world. I can tell you that. Uh, they wouldn't be on the front page for another prisoner dies this week. They could, care, could have cared less. Dark, damp, rat-infested, disease-infested places where you just cold, hard, cold gruel, if anything. And then he says, metaphorically or descriptively, he's saying, do you know what it's like? What the servant's going to do? He's going to bring you out of what you were in and you thought it was good. You thought you were really living high and you come out and then your eyes are open. You see the daylight and you rub your eyes. I can see now. Thank you, Lord. Oh, I know what life's about now. It's to be about you. I'm to be your servant. Yes, yes. And the, I made in your image. I've been forgiven through the blood and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free at last. And you can go out into the streets and running and jumping up and down. Thank you, Lord. I'm free to serve you. And sin can be, it can be overcome by the power of the Spirit of God in his word. And you don't have to live with that any longer. And that's what he's describing here. So the servant is going to be this way. And then he finally, can we just say it? Sign off with this, and we've got a good lead in here with the communion table. That the success of the, of the sermon, say this very quickly, the success of the servant of God is not determined by power, authority, appearance, persuasive powers, wealth accumulated, or fame achieved. That's <laughs> God's servant. He's a, he's, bring in your idols. Bring in your idols. I'm insulted that you would dare bow your knee to these idols. What's your idol? What's my idol? You have one? Yeah. We've all indulged somewhere, some along the line. Lord, forgive me. I wanted to be your servant. The greatest success story ever told is lived by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's the servant. Greatest story ever told. Our mission, my mission, your mission, what is it? I'm to uphold the glory of God. Thank you, Lord. I like things to be clear. And you know, sometimes I can, I can get a little confused, but I want to get confused about this. I'm here to be the servant of God and bring glory to him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you've given to us these clarifying, soul-stirring, mind-clearing, heart-throbbing words with regard to Jesus Christ, your servant. Oh, Lord, we look forward to what you're going to tell us in Isaiah 49. Oh, now, Lord, in the meantime, so that we may live as your servants, so help us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.